It's nice to meet you. Can you hear yeah. me okay? I can, I can hear you. I can see you clearly. Good, good. Thank you very much, Jen, for giving me opportunity to interview you for my YouTube channel and podcast. Of course, I was very flattered that you asked. So I've gone through your profile. I can see you're doing uh, uh, a lot of uh, different works. So I thought to tell about the work that you're doing to my audience. Sure. Sure. So um, my name is Jen Brandel. I am a psychotherapist in Boston. Um, and so for most of my days, I'm doing therapy sessions with clients. Um, but in addition to that, I also do training and supervision. And when the pandemic started, I um, could see that there was a real need for services and it was really difficult for people to access services. So I decided to release, to, to sort of write two books um, that I thought would be really helpful to people. Um, the first one is called My Crisis Plan and it's really small. It's like a little book that you can carry with you. You can scan into your phone. Um, but the idea behind it was that, you know, a lot of times when we think about when someone's in a crisis, you know, when somebody's really feeling terrible, we think, well, there, there are these experts that they need to get in touch with who can help them. And sometimes that's certainly the case that we can be in a state of crisis where we require some kind of a professional um, to intervene. But there are a lot of times when we're in crisis that we actually have a lot of the resources ourselves. And so I wanted to put together like a, a small book that was just a lot of concrete reminders or um, tools that people can use to access their own resources. So it's it's sort of set up where you can fill it out ahead of time, either by yourself or with a therapist. Um, but it has in it really concrete, like, you know, you try to think about when, when we're really upset, it's hard to think really clearly or problem solve, or, you know, I thought about, well, I, I could make a bigger book that has a lot more tools, but then I was thinking about it and I thought, well, when we're really upset, I don't know that we're going to want to read through chapters, <laughs> you know, like read a hundred page book to get to the solution. So, um, but I wanted to make something where people can go in and write for themselves what some of their tools are, what some of the things are they want to remind themselves of, what are some of the things that help ground them when they're feeling really um, uh, uneasy or in distress. And, and I wanted to make it so that it was accessible. So um, it's a pretty cheap book and all profits go to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So I'm not making any money off of this. It's more um, something that I wanted to just put out there to share with people. And so during the pandemic, I donated um, copies of this to suicide prevention hotlines and you know college counseling centers and community health centers so that they could share with clients or people who were in need or could make copies of it and share just the pages you know that were helpful and relevant so that that's just a small book that's out there um that's available for people and i have a, a sort of a smaller version of it that's available as a pdf on my website that people can just download for free but a lot of the other exercises, you'd need a, a copy of it, you know, but I, like I said, I don't mind if people photocopy it and share it with friends or family members. So, so that was the first thing that I wrote. I don't know if you have thoughts or questions about that particular one. Yeah, before talking about that, uh, I want to know uh, why you wanted to become a psychotherapist. Um. It, that's it's funny because I come from a family where there are social workers and therapists in my family. And when I was growing up, I didn't. I never thought that I wanted to have this job. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I it, while I was in college, I did some volunteering, and I found that when I was working with people who were struggling, um, it was I was very inspired by just the resiliency of humans and um, the way in which we can make it through very difficult or challenging situations or conditions 
and find kind of our inner strength and resources and, and make meaning out of our experiences. So I found that really fascinating. So I ended up, you know, when I was in college taking some classes in psychology and then um, when I was trying to think about like what kind of work I wanted to do, I realized like stuff that has to do with people and how we think and how we relate in the world was certainly something I was passionate about. Um, and once I, I had worked a little bit outside of college, um, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and, and I wasn't sure, I knew I wanted to help people. I wasn't sure exactly what role I wanted to be in. Um, so I spent a lot of my early career I did some public health stuff around HIV and sexually transmitted infections and unwanted teen pregnancies um, and sex education. And, uh, you know, I worked in the school and I worked with the homeless population. And um, and then, you know, after having been in the field, working lots of different jobs and with lots of different people over the years, um, I really felt like, you know, I could, uh, I would have a freedom if I started my own business where I got to be in private practice. I could do the work the way that I felt like it needed to be done and have some freedom about what that looked like, rather than being in an environment where someone was telling me, you can only see this person this many times, or, you know, you can meet with them a couple of times and then refer them off. Or if somebody comes in and they're dealing with trauma, kind of patch them up in the short term so that they can function and go to school. but don't get too far into it. Like I wanted to be able to like help people the way I felt like they needed to be helped. Um, and so that's why I like started my own private practice, which now I guess has been maybe about eight years. Um, I feel like I have the freedom to like work with people in whatever way that they might need. Uh, any particular experience in this idea? Um, yeah, can you ask that another way? Uh, any experience that you cannot forget? Any experiences I can't forget? Oh, there's so many. I mean, I feel like so many of my experiences really stay with me. Whether they stay with me specifically remembering everything about that person's story or whether it was that working with that person really changed me, like has really changed my perspective or given me new tools. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of the work that I do with people around trauma, um, where I've seen people who have been through things where it's kind of a miracle <laughs> that they are still that they're still with us and that they're still whole, functional, kind, loving people. Um, that that I think when I when I listen to the courage of people being able to revisit really painful experiences with um, with the goal of making meaning out of it and kind of gaining some strength from that rather than just to feel like a victim and, and kind of plagued by it for their whole life. So when I see people who have the courage, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, I mean, a lot of times if we have a bad day, we don't want to think about it again. <laughs> you know, if you have something that's so traumatic and, and devastating, whether it's a devastating loss, you know, if you had a traumatic loss in your life or abuse um, or experienced violence, you know, a lot of times people we're like, we're pretty avoidant. We don't want to think about that or talk about it ever again. So when I see people who are willing to revisit really painful experiences in order to heal and in order to gain empathy for other people, I think it's incredibly profound. Like I'm very inspired by that. So those so, stories stay with me a lot. I got you. So uh, you wrote these two books uh, and uh, you wanted to help people. So what you wrote? So the first one, as I said, is this small book that people can use, and it's more a resource to use um, to help you just kind of concretely get through when you're having a really difficult time. The other book is, um, it's called When Rabbits Spill Their Tea, and it's a book that's set up where it's all about metaphors. So it's set up where... Um, it has a, um, a metaphor that kind of relates to a different experience in life. Um, and then there's a corresponding color photo photo. And to be honest with you, Sai, I think I wrote the book that I wanted. <laughs> like, I think the idea of 
like I often think in pictures, you know, like I'm a very visual person. And so a lot of times, you know, um, and I'm sure there's other people like this, um, when it comes to like expressing something um, like deeply emotional, or if we encounter, we're struggling with something, sometimes it's hard to find the words to describe it. You know, sometimes it's hard to really find language that captures it. So I think that a lot of times we'll describe it instead um, with an image. So um, I don't know if this resonates for you, but, you know, one of the metaphors is, you know, a blender with the lid off. And if I'm I, if I hear somebody and they're talking and they say, you know, you know, my my cousin, they kind of they talk a lot about their stuff and there's a lot of emotion. And when people are around them, sometimes it's hard to be around them. Like I can kind of understand what they're describing. But when they say my cousin is like a blender with the lid off, like the image is somebody that's not contained. Stuff is just splattering everywhere, splattering everybody around, you know. And so it's very like vivid and like evocative. And so this book is just full of metaphors that sort of capture all these different kinds of difficult emotions or life experiences, but capturing it in kind of an image idea. And I think that's powerful because one, regardless of language or background or what our lived experience is, it, it sort of universalizes it. Like you can kind of, people kind of get the idea, even if the language they might use to describe that is different. Um, pictures and images and metaphors and sort of story making, I think, help kind of bridge some of those language barriers and, and sort of cultural differences, I think, that we all have. Um, but I also think that sometimes those images or metaphors can offer us or guide us to what some of the answers might be or what some of the strategies might be that we use, right? Like, so you know, if we stay with the blender picture, if you imagine that you're interacting with somebody and they're kind of like a blender with the lid off and stuff just splatters everywhere and you feel really affected by their emotions, there's just sort of spilling over. If you kind of think about that image, you can think, okay, well, do I need to step back a little? <laughs> you know, if there literally was a blender with the lid off, I might like step back a little. I might, I might kind of protect myself. Like I might have a little bit of armor or kind of give myself a little bit of a barrier there. Um, I might see if there's a way that I could help them contain, kind of put a lid on it a little bit, you know? So, so I think there's ways in which when we use metaphors in that way, not only can it be very validating, like we feel like somebody really understands what we're expressing, but I think it can also really be really helpful for us in kind of giving us a new perspective on it and maybe opening us up to something that would be useful or relieving. Does that make sense? Is this your autobiography of uh, autobiography, autobiography of your uh, feelings, thoughts, and emotions? You know, it's not really set up like autobiographical, but that given that I that I would say, um, I think that in the in this book, what I capture is I certainly capture images and metaphors that I've found helpful for sure. Um, I think I've also, some of the things that are in this book are, are things that were kind of co-created in my work with clients. So, you know, you know, I'll find, you know, I'll be talking with a client and, you know, we may be talking about relationships and we may be talking about ways in which, um, you know, we um, are so hungry for connection and, you know, together we may come up with this sort of language of saying, well, it's kind of like when you're a squirrel and you're collecting all of these things and trying to store and hold on to everything, you know? And so if that, if that resonates for somebody, we may just kind of use that as a shared image and play with it and talk about it and say, well, you know, let's think about that squirrel and like how you might use that idea. And so there's some of the things that are in the book were kind of co-created if that makes sense. Like some of the, some of the metaphors um, are things that I've built with other people that I, and certainly use in my practice a lot, a lot of the times, in fact, I would say there's, I don't think there's any, ever a day in my clinical practice where I'm talking with somebody and I'm not using some kind of 
visual reference or an image or a metaphor. Like, I think it's just so baked into how I think about this work and how, you know, if that makes sense. So I feel like this book captures a lot of those. And I, I use, I mean, I still, even though these are things that I'm very familiar with, there are times where I still find them very helpful or I'll open the book to a page to kind of just meditate on it for the day. Uh, it connects with every human. Say that again. Uh, it connects with every human. Yes, exactly. That that I feel like everyone, um, everyone, like all of these are things that are kind of um, universal. Like I feel like there are, you know, one of the things I, I, I thought about when I was putting the book together is not every single metaphor in this book may feel relevant to somebody. But I feel pretty confident that if somebody picks it up and they just open to a page, they're gonna find something. But they're like, oh, I know exactly what that's like. And I think there's something about using the, the images and the pictures and this kind of story metaphor language that just boils it down to just human experience that we all can relate to, if that makes sense. So, so you captured the, the, the emotions, feelings, uh, thoughts of different people, also of yourself. You mixed it and you did some shake and uh, you put it in the form of uh, words and you're showing to the world. Right, exactly, exactly. And the hope that I had was certainly I feel like as a psychotherapist, you know, I can impact and help people, but it tends to be you know, one person at a time, you know, and sometimes if I do trainings or I put together programs, I feel like I can work with groups of people, so, you know, or a community of people. But this felt like a way of taking some things that I found really helpful or healing and offering it on a much bigger scale so that anybody can access this. And so it's been really cool to see this book showing up, you know, in lots of different countries or, you know, um, you know, when I see people all around um, the United States that are reading it or picking it up, like that feels really good to me. Of like, that's just a different kind of read. Um, so anytime I hear from somebody that something in either one of these books has been helpful or helped somebody that they care about or that they were able to gift it to somebody that they knew was having a hard time, I mean, it makes me feel really good. You know, I mean, that's, that was the goal. What people said after reading it? It's funny. It's there. It, what I really love about it is people use it in different ways. Um, there are a lot of people that I've talked to who it's the book they send to a friend who's having a hard time. So if a friend, you know, has a loss or a friend is struggling or a friend just lost their job, like, if, you know, if a friend's been depressed or somebody's really anxious, um, it, it's, I, I really love that people have felt compelled to share it like as a gift, as a way of kind of offering to their friends and family members something that can be so helpful. Um, sometimes people will talk about, um, you know, some people read it straight through, start at page one and go all the way through like a regular book. But a lot of people shared uh, using it as a practice you know, of a lot of people will use the book and kind of open it to a certain page or a certain image or metaphor and use that almost as an intention for the day. I'm going to pay attention to that. I'm going to see if I can see in the course of this day if that comes up. Do you know what I mean? So if there's an image of like, um, you know, that's referencing, referencing if you're driving a car and it runs out of gas, we don't just abandon the car on the side of the road and go, what a piece of junk and just leave it, right? We usually like realize, oh, it's out of fuel. Like we just need to put more fuel in and then it works fine. And so that, you know, you can use that image for people that if we're depleted, we don't need to beat ourselves up and go, what's wrong with me? I'm a terrible person and I suck. <laughs> you know, Like we just need fuel. So we think about like, what, what do we need to give ourselves so that we can replenish ourselves? Does that make sense? So that's why I think that sometimes what people shared was that they might 
think about that image of the car over the course of the day and notice themselves being kinder to themselves or more compassionate or patient, you know, or pay more attention to where, what's my gas gauge, <laughs> you know, like, do, am I filled up and I feel like I have all the energy in the world or do I feel kind of tired and depleted? And if so, what can I give myself to put more fuel in? So that's a good example of like the different ways I hear people using it, if that makes sense. It's great that you're giving it for free. Yeah, so this is the book that the the My Crisis Plan book, that one people purchase, but all of the money goes to a suicide hotline. This book is not for free. Um, so it is for sale um, at, you know, any bookstore. Um, and it's available. Yeah, I mean, there's also a, a, an electronic, like a digital version of it, if people prefer that. Um, but and, the, and it's something where I feel like. Um, you know, wanting it to be as available as possible and it's something that people can share with one another. Um, but obviously, like in our world, any kind of book that you print that has especially full color photographs, <laughs> it does cost something to make it. Um, but I, you know, had worked with the publisher to try to keep the price as low as possible, if that makes sense. So as a psychotherapist, uh, you might have seen a lot of people having uh, um, different things going in their life. So what are the extreme things that you experienced, that they, uh, the, the extreme people that you saw? Well, again, like I've worked with so many people over the years who were just in very challenging, difficult situations, whether it's people who you know, um, are without a home or are experiencing addiction or struggling with, you know, surviving violence. Um, so there's all kinds of people that I've worked with. I think one of the things, and I don't know if this is, is something you can relate to or has come up for you in the last couple of years, but one of the things that has been really profound is the impact of the pandemic, you know, um, in the last couple of years um, and the way in which you know, especially I just think, you know, culturally in the United States, we had not experienced generationally, we had not experienced something that that scale. Um, and so, I, you know, a lot of people were not equipped or prepared for that. So the kind of, you know, quarantining and being in social isolation or being worried about physical health or family members dying or losing jobs or, you know, I mean, financial constraints, like all of those things getting compounded at a time when people were isolated and not able to leave their home for such an extended period of time, that's had like a major impact on people. So I definitely still feel like I'm seeing the effects of that and still seeing, I don't know if you're seeing this, but, but still seeing people um, having to adjust you know, kind of transition back into the world, you know. Um, so that's been something that in the course of my career, I just never anticipated. But and it's and it's always interesting, I think, when you're going through, you're, you're trying to help people through a really difficult experience, but you're also experiencing it, you know. So at the same time, I'm also in isolation and quarantined or worried about family, you know. So um, but I think there's something really joining about shared difficult experiences. So I think, you know, I think there's a way in which we kind of borrow strength from one another in some of those situations. Um, and I still, even though I know for a lot of people, they're approaching it and feeling like the pandemic is done. Certainly where I'm living, there's tons of people still getting COVID. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, but there's still so many people that have been affected by it, whether it's losing family members or their jobs are not the same, or now they're only working from home and they don't go into an office or, you know, their health has deteriorated because they haven't been going to the doctor during, you know, the pandemic. So there's a lot of impact still I'm seeing. Tell me about your challenging and uh, learning experience. You know, I think <laughs> this this says something I think about me personally too. Um, coming into this work, you know, I think for a lot of people who go into the helping professions, there's this kind of there's this wish or maybe a fantasy that we have that if we just care enough about people and we help people, then we'll just save everybody. 
and we can eliminate suffering and make people's pain go away. And, um, and so I think when I, even though logically I understood as a professional person that that's not how things work, I think at the beginning of my career, there was a part of me that still held that idea. And I think as a result of it, it made it really hard to have boundaries. You know, it's really hard to work somewhere where I know that at the end of the night, if I work at a drop-in center for young people who are living and working on the streets, at the end of the night, when I go to lock up and go home to my warm, heated home where I have food, um, there's it's it's sometimes hard to get yourself to leave, you know, to because the impulse is you want to bring everybody home with you where they'll be safe. And the idea that they're going to be sleeping outside or they won't have food that night, like it's kind of hard to bear that we see witnessing that kind of suffering. And so I think at the beginning of my career, there was a way in which um, it was hard to to learn how to have boundaries that would allow me to sustain myself in the work. So, you know, there was a period at the very beginning of my career where I just took all of my work home with me. Like I would be thinking about it or dreaming about it or worrying about people and that it, you know, it led to me feeling really anxious and exhausted and dreading work and just feeling like there was no break from it. And it was really overwhelming. And I had to step away from the work for a couple of years because it was too much to bear. Um, And so I think it was really one of the most important lessons I feel like I learned as a professional was how to use boundaries and how to use like my own care for myself, like how to take care of myself as the helper so that I can show up and be in the presence of pain and be in the presence of suffering and bear witness to that and and help people with that and still sustain myself, like still make sure that I'm taking care of myself. And, you know, so learning practices like Every day, making sure I'm starting in a place where I feel clear and centered and, you know, no, this is this is the limit of what I can do and what I can't do. Um, And at the end of the day, needing a little space to kind of set everything down, you know, to be able to say, like, I need to kind of breathe or meditate or go for a walk, like something to kind of separate that out and put it away so that there's some break from that. and that, that was a really hard lesson to learn because it's really hard to set boundaries or to say no to somebody who's suffering, <laughs> you know? And so, but if all you do is say, yes, 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 yes. Like, you know, if people are saying, can you meet with me at 10 o'clock at night? <laughs> like, you could, you could fill your schedule and just see people every hour of the day, you know? And so if you, to have a boundary where you're trying to also protect and be kind and compassionate to yourself, it's challenging to do that. So I think that was a really hard lesson for me to learn that if I wanted to be a professional helper, there was no way to do it unless I was going to also take care of myself doing it. That's probably true for a lot of us in our work, (laughs) to be honest, now that I'm saying it, that may be true for you in your work too, that it may be hard for you to do what you do unless you're taking care of yourself. Is it same uh, 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 working with clients or individuals who are from different professions? That's a great question. That's a really great question. Um, I think it, it depends. Um, I think it can be. I think that um, I found that if I'm working with someone, so so there were for about eight years, I worked in college counseling, but I worked at an art school. So it was with kids who were studying to be actors and directors and, you know, um, visual artists. And, um, and so when I would be working with people who were in artistic careers, they often express themselves very like colorfully and they were, they could access their emotions a lot of the time and they were curious about themselves, you know, very kind of introspective. And, um, and so their perspective was often very kind of like wide open and big and (laughs) colorful. And um, whereas, you know, there have been times that I've worked with somebody who's in more of a profession around like, math 
sometimes science, although science, I feel like can also be incredibly creative and big and expansive, but, but where it, maybe it's like technology or something really concrete. And for some people, they're so used to their logical brain. Like, so working with them on something, their, their habit is so, they're so used to just thinking about, well, this should just make logical sense. It should just go in a linear way. Um, and so I found for myself, sometimes I need to adapt a little bit about how I work with people, depending on how they kind of, um, how they think about or imagine themselves in the world. You know, that if somebody is used to things that are very concrete, I may have to adjust and instead of using images and stories and, you know, that may be a little bit abstract, I may have to be a little more concrete, you know, or have a practice that I do with the person right there where they can kind of see, here's the, here's the idea or use more science, you know, of sharing more like here's a little piece about brain science. Let me like share this piece of information about how our brains work and see if we can help apply that then to when you're having an anxious thought, does it help to think about how your brain works in this situation? Does that make sense? So I think it's, it's a great insightful question because I think it is definitely true. Like different people experience the world and their emotions and the sense of their self in very different ways. And that's kind of reflected sometimes in what they do most of the day. Uh, what's the favorite thing that you have in your job? That's a great question too. That's a hard one because I do love my job. Um, I feel like it's never boring. <laughs> it is never boring. Um, I laugh a lot, which is kind of surprising for a lot of people who don't know that much about therapy. It sounds like, oh my God, you're working with people in pain and in the worst places of their life and you're laughing. But I really believe that humor can be really healing. And um, so I think there are a lot of times with clients um, even when we're kind of exploring experiences that they have that are painful, that there are ways that we can find appropriate openings for some lightness or humor or um, perspective. Um, so I feel like I have a job where, you know, I bet I laugh every day when I'm working. Um, I just feel like I get to meet incredible, strong, inspiring people. And every day my job is just hearing these incredible stories of people overcoming challenges and surviving really difficult conditions or learning incredible lessons about themselves. And so as a result, I, I'm learning, you know? So even though it's a helping job, it's not selfless. Like I, I feel like I gain a lot from the work. So it's been, it's really helped me become the person that I am. So I'm incredibly grateful I get to do this work. It's very satisfying. And it's, I feel very, um, you know, kindness and helping people is a, a personal value that I carry. And the fact that I've found a way to have my job be so tied to my personal values and something that feels so meaningful to me, like I'm very grateful because not everybody has the privilege of that. Uh, why we have emotions and why it changes? That's a great, <laughs> that's a very big question. You know, I, I think how you answer that kind of depends, you know, um, a neuroscientist might answer that one way um, about how emotions help us to navigate and understand the world. You know, we may have anxiety and develop like an ability to experience anxiety as defense, like as a protection, right? Like um, we have our bodies respond. Like if we hear a noise and our bodies get anxious and tense and tight and our breath starts to be fast, it, we're getting ready to run. And that's survival, right? Like that's just how we've evolved to survive. So a neuroscientist might look at like, why do we have these challenges and difficult experiences and emotions in the world. And they might say, well, it's, you know, evolution. And we've kind of, as animals, developed to function in this way. If you ask somebody who's more artistic or spiritual or, you know, I certainly think that our emotions and, and the, the difficulties that we face those are part of what help us understand one another. Like, if you think about it, it 
it it'd be hard to be able to really connect and empathize and understand somebody who had loss, for example, like if they a, a loved one had died. If we have no concept of it, if we've never experienced it, no one near us has ever experienced it. You know, we've never felt anything. We never lost anything ever in our life, you know, not even a material thing. Like it'd be really hard to relate. And so I think there's a way in which just there's this interconnected energy that we all share. And I think we often are finding that through emotions, through struggles, through overcoming things and sharing that and coming together and helping each other and supporting one another. So is as much as having emotions and being emotional animals can be a pain in the ass at the same time, it's, um, it's what makes life interesting and, and rich. You know, um, if you think about the people you find most interesting in the world probably have had some struggle or challenge at some point. It's not, it's, I'm going to guess most people that, you know, um, we look to as being, you know, having lessons that they could teach us or, um, you know, interesting stories or finding them really, you know, um, deeply compelling. It's probably because they've learned a lot and they probably learned a lot because they've had to overcome some difficult things. So I think even I try to keep that perspective of, you know, it's not, oh, it's wonderful and we should all love sitting with difficult feelings, but without them, I'm not really sure what life would look like. Uh. Uh, I'm sure uh, uh, you might have worked with uh, different uh, professionals, mm -hmm. people who belongs to different industries and uh, who works in different industries. So, yeah. according to your experience, so which which job that uh, actually makes that human to balance his emotions? God, that's a great question. <laughs> um, know if I could say if there's a particular profession or job. But if I think about the people that I've worked with who I think have been most successful at finding balance, and I and I when the people that come to my mind, they're kind of in all kinds of different professions. But it's having the ability to tell me if this makes sense. But it's 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 having the ability to kind of zoom the lens out a little bit and observe yourself. So I think people in all kinds of different professions have the ability to do that. But that seems to me to be an important skill to be able to um, have like attunement to ourselves, to know what we're needing and feeling, to be able to see what's happening for us, to be able to get a little distance from our thoughts and not just take everything that we think as fact. Um, so anything that kind of helps somebody expand, that's why I say scientists, I think, are, they're used to looking at something and getting really curious about it and really wanting to understand it and like to ask big, interesting questions and look at it from different angles. So I feel like in some ways, th those are incredibly resilient skills to bring to your personal life and emotions, you know? So to have balance, I think it is, you know, whatever profession allows you to have perspective um, and, to, and to value yourself in that picture, to see your worth. Uh, is it important for a human to have uh, an outlet in order to avoid being abnormal? No, I think so. I think so. Although I think that outlet, what that is can vary, you know, um, for some people, it's, it can be um, a kind of solitary outlet, whether it's like I go for long runs in the woods, but it's kind of a way to express and release something, or they may journal, you know, um, but I also think there are ways in which people have outlets that are shared and communal. So it may be like, I go dancing with a group of friends regularly, or I make music, you know, um, or I build things like I'm a part of a home building volunteer organization, or, um, you know, I make furniture or I paint 
pictures, but I do think there's a way, like there's a basic core human need that we have to express ourselves and have some impact in our environment to, that, that just helps us feel not just like alive, but, but we're um, seen, you know, like, I think we want to feel like we can act in our community or in our environment or in the world and see that it makes a difference. And so I think out any outlet that allows us to interact or interface with the world where there's value, you know, that we, we, we create something meaningful, we have a meaningful connection, we laugh really hard with somebody or we make somebody laugh, you know, anything where we're kind of interacting with the world, I think is really key. Uh, what is the interconnection between emotion, logic, and age? So, I think you need both. Um, what's tricky is, ideally, what we want is to feel like we have sort of a balance of those two things. Is that we want to feel like, you know, in, in the front of our brain, this is the prefrontal cortex. And that's where all the thinking stuff happens, like analyzing, problem solving, logic, all of that stuff is here. And in the back of our brain is the amygdala. And that's where it's like our emotion brain, like fight or flight. It's like the reptile brain, like our basic animal instinct brain, right? Um, and so I think that if all we did would think, analyze, um, we would be very efficient, <laughs> but I don't know how interesting we would be. And I'm not sure how nurturing or loving we would be um, if it was all logic. I think there's a way in which that could be fairly flat and boring and kind of mechanical. When we add in emotion, um, if we were just emotion brain, I would think things would be fairly chaotic, <laughs> very like overwhelming, a lot, very chaotic and exhausting. So I think it's like when you can kind of, you know, find the where those things overlap, you know, find a place where you've got and, and different people have different balances. Some people may be 70 percent logic brain and 30 percent emotion brain. And cool. That's a great balance for them. But I think you need something of both. You know, and I think both those things, like it's sometimes if you think about math and mathematics, um, you know, we often think about that as being an incredibly logical, intellectual thing. But really, math theory is super abstract. It requires you to think very broadly and creatively and abstractly. And so I think most professions and most sort of functions in our world, you need both those things. You need some kind of a balance because one helps us better access and relate to and, and, and make meaning of the other, if that makes sense. These are great questions, Sai. <laughs> so have you worked with, uh, have you worked for animals? Have I worked with animals? Is that what you said? Yeah. No, I haven't worked directly with animals. That said, um, I love animals. And so I, I have, you know, a cat and dog. And, um, and one thing that I have seen is the impact of when you do the kind of work that I do and bring an animal in. So I have colleagues who have um, animals as a part of their work. So they may have a dog that's trained as like a therapy dog that's there in the office and has, is trained to respond when people are in distress or just to be there to provide comfort. And it is incredible to watch um, that, you know, I've seen people when they're feeling very panicked and overwhelmed if a dog comes in even if they're like emotional, out of control, crying, if a, an animal comes in, sometimes you'll just watch them, like you can just see it cool out and this calm and comfort come over. So I think it's kind of cool that there, there are ways in which I think as human animals, when we interact with other animals, I think there is a way in which we can kind of co-regulate one another, you know, and affect one another in that way that could be really, really useful.
And I think we have a ton to learn about it, you know, from animals, you know, as somebody who's really into meditation and kind of Buddhist ideas, I feel like I look at my dog and I'm like, oh my God, that's, if only I could be as present. <laughs> my dog is in a constant state of being fully present, you know, um, that I feel like there's ways we could learn, you know, from them. So your first book that you said uh, is, uh, is is about, uh, uh, it helps people uh, when they're in difficult times. So what is mean by difficult? So one of the first things in the book that, um, that I offer people is a way to distinguish between, am I in crisis like I'm a danger to myself, like I might try to hurt myself or hurt someone else? And, or is it that I'm just in a lot of distress? Like it's just a lot of pain. It hurts. And can you tell the difference? Because certainly when we're in a place where we're like, I don't feel like I can keep myself safe. It requires us to ask for help and get intervention. Um, and so in, in the book, I, there's a series of questions people can just answer and tick the boxes that will help them get clear about that. Like, is this a situation where I'm in pain and I don't feel like I can keep myself safe? Like, I'm worried I'm going to hurt myself or I can't take care of myself or my basic needs. And if that's the case, right in the very front of the book is a list of hotlines. Like, it's, it's our resources. You don't have to dig through the book to find them. It's like, here are places you can call immediately to get help you know? Um, but for a lot of people, it's not, they, they may be in distress and it may feel really terrible, but they may not be in danger, physical danger. Um, it just hurts. They're really, really sad or they feel really, really alone or they're very overwhelmed or they're scared about something or they're very anxious and can't calm themselves. And in that case, the book just, helps them identify like, okay, you're, you're physically safe. Like you're not in danger. Um, let's go through what some of the things are that might be helpful to help you get through this difficult moment. And it can range. And that's, that's right. I mean, again, it's not unlike the, when rabbits spill their tea book, I think my crisis plan is full of tools that I have found useful. You know? So, um, but there are things like, you know, remembering, is there, is there a person that if you reached out to them, that would be helpful? So they can put names and phone numbers and email addresses like right in the book. So they don't have to search for it later. Like they can say, remember, these people are helpful to call. Um, there, one thing, I mean, the book in a way, if this helps give you an idea of it, if you think about every experience that we have as a triangle where there are thoughts, and feelings, and then kind of how our body feels in it. Okay, like a physical experience of it. If every experience we have is that triangle, if we can affect any point on the triangle, the other two will help as well. The other two will decrease. So if you wake up in the middle of the night because you heard a noise, and you're like, physically, my body is really tense, and my thoughts are going, oh, my God, a killer just got in the house or I'm getting robbed. Right. And you're emotionally feeling afraid or alone or threatened. Right. Um, if in that moment you can address any one of those points. So if you could calm and soothe and reassure the emotion, it's OK. Like you're going to be OK. Like I know it's scary, but it's it's probably just a noise and it's all right. Like you just kind of tend to the emotion. Then the thoughts are going to slowly quiet and your body's going to slowly relax. Does that make sense? If you feel like, no, I can't calm the emotion. Okay, then let go of that. <laughs> go to a different point of the triangle. Can you challenge the thought? Can you let yourself feel afraid, but then say, okay, let's logically think through it. The thought is a killer is in the house. What else could it be? Is there, are there any other possibilities of what that noise could have been? Well, my cat sometimes knocks over the plant downstairs. Okay, so is there anything else? Well, it could be that, you know, my neighbor just pulled their car up and knocked into the trash can. Okay, so like as you start to challenge the thought, you might notice that you feel a little less afraid. Like, oh, wait, maybe it actually wasn't a murderer, you know? Um, and your body starts to relax. And if you're like, no, I can't stop thinking the terrible thoughts of the robber coming into my house, then just focus on your body. Can you take some breaths? Can you tighten up and relax your muscles? Can you stretch? 
a little bit, you know? Can you like get up and move and loosen up that tension? And what sometimes what will happen is when we tend to our body in that way, we'll notice that the thoughts start to slow down and drop off and we start to kind of breathe more calmly and we're not as freaked out. So the book is set up like that. It's got different tools and exercises for each point on the triangle. Here's things you can do about your thoughts. Here's things you can do about your feelings. Here's things you can do about your body. And so that way, you know, depending on what somebody's feeling in any particular moment, they've got options. Does that make sense? And that's why the book is set up where if you try something and you're like, this isn't working, <laughs> that's okay. Just flip a couple pages forward and you're going to come to a different, you can try something else. Does that make sense? So people from different parts of the world, uh, the things that are happening for them are same or different? Oof. That's a great question too. Um, you know, for me, living in a fairly privileged, like economically and resource privileged place, um, I think it's important for us to recognize that there are a lot of people in the world that are dealing with things that I may not even be able to imagine, you know, or relate to. So I think that there are there can be big differences in what we're experiencing, even within the United States where there's privilege. I know that for myself as a white woman, you know, what my struggles look like, even bad struggles, even difficult struggles are nothing compared to a black woman in the United States or a young black man in the United States. So I think our experiences are different. That said, I think that they're the, the sort of, generally speaking, what we all wish for and want in life, what we all wish for and want for ourselves are probably more similar than they are different. And what we all feel like emotionally, I think is probably more the same than different. Even if our circumstances and contexts are different. Uh, is it possible to have positive emotions all the time? No. <laughs> no, but the good news is it's also not possible to have a negative emotion all the time. Sometimes the way I'll think about it is, um, you know, our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems are built to not hold anything in a permanent state. Because if it did, we'd die out as a species. If we like got scared and stayed scared forever, or I mean, if you think about how we experience it in our body, we couldn't survive. Like we would, it would not be a good adaptation. So it's, we are built to have those things drop off, which is why we usually experience feelings and distress in waves, okay? The good thing about that is if you imagine, um, you know when you do exercise and you try to pull yourself up on the bar and hold yourself over the bar? If you try to do a pull-up and you try to hold it as long as you can, no matter who you are, some people can hold it for a long time, some people can not even pull their chin over the bar, but no matter what, at some point, your body's going to let go. Like you can't just stay in that state forever. At some point, your body will say enough and whether you want to or not, it's going to let go. That's how it is with emotions. So, I mean, it's kind of a funny idea because it's almost like if you're sitting with a difficult emotion, like you're feeling really panicky. If you said to yourself, I'm going to try to be as panicky as I can be. <laughs> let me see if I can like, dial it up. I'm going to be super panicky. Sooner or later, it's going to drop off. And so I find that very helpful to know that like, you know, the downside is what you were saying, though, is that it does, it means you don't just have joy and then always have joy. But I'm not sure life would be very interesting because you can't really appreciate joy without something on the other side of it, without some kind of contrast to it. You know, if all we ever felt was happy and joyful, I'm not even sure it would feel good <laughs> because there's nothing in contrast, you know? So I think you have to have both. Um, but the good news is, is that everything is constantly impermanent and changing. So really difficult times are going to pass. Um, 
difficult feelings are going to transform and change. Really happy moments, those probably will change too, you know? And if we can kind of just get used to riding the waves, that's the goal. It's not like get happy and stay happy forever and ever and ever. It's more like, can I get comfortable with just riding the waves, you know, of just that's contentment is I can just whatever comes, if there's a disappointment that comes, I can ride that out. And if there's joyful, exciting experience, then I'll celebrate that. And then if there's a loss, then I'll get through that. But it's just that. That's the way I think about it. Uh, is, is there any particular way of being that helps a, a human to uh, adapt to the environmental changes and societal uh, changes? I think so. And this is not this is not my idea. This is an old idea um, that goes way back. Um, but I think acceptance is key. I think it's very difficult. Mo a lot of times our suffering is coming from resisting something like fighting against not wanting something to be the way that it is. And I think learning how to be present, learning how to accept things as they are in any given moment. And learning how to have experiences and not attach a lot of stories and judgments to it, but to just let it be what it is. Um, I think those as strategies help a lot for us to kind of have that flexibility to ride the waves. So what is working for you in order to maintain everything? So I think meditation is incredibly helpful. Um, you know, I have a regular daily meditation practice. Um, I think being outside, I think nature or being outside is helpful. Um, so I do try to like get outside every day if I can. Um, I think this sounds, this is, this sounds very simple, <laughs> but slowing down. I'm somebody who I talk fast. I think fast. But I think just the mantra of saying over and over to myself, like, just slow down, it's like slowing down, I think gives us a chance to, instead of just reacting or responding in sort of habitual ways, um, we slow it down and then we find we have some choice. We get to decide, oh, here's a thing that I'm feeling. Now I get to decide. You know, it's kind of like slowing down. If I'm if I'm going in, you know, past a store and I go, I want a donut, right? <laughs> if there's no space at all between it, it goes from just a thought of I want a donut to I'm at the counter buying a donut to eat it. But if I can slow down, I may be able to have a thought and then say, oh, interesting, I just had a desire for a donut. Do I want a donut? Donut sometimes make me feel kind of gross in the morning. Maybe I don't want a donut. And I can choose. So I think slowing down is helpful. And so I do feel like for myself, I think slowing myself down, building in practices that help me stay present, um, boundaries, those have been some of the most important practices that I have that help me do my job. Uh, apart from writing books and uh, being a psychotherapist, I can see you also uh, get training and also coaching. So how yeah. are you able to do this? So um, there are sometimes organizations in the community that will ask me to come in to teach about a particular thing to a community or a group of people. Um, there are sometimes that I'll do trainings or classes for different groups. Um, and then there are also ways in which I try to connect with other professionals um, to try to support them in their professional work. So whether it's offering supervision or consultation for them or, you know, guidance, like there's sometimes, you know, there might be a, a, a new clinician who is just starting out who is wanting some guidance around, you know, when I'm working with clients and we're dealing with this particular issue, I don't really know, I have a few tools to offer, but I'm not sure what else to do in the situation and kind of being able to work with them to help expand their professional tool set um, or to offer them some guidance or supervision or to support one another. I think that, you know, one of the things that I do is offer supervision where it's being able to offer a space for other professionals 
to do exactly what I talked about earlier of like, you need a space to discharge and unload all of what you may be carrying. Oh, I had a really difficult session. I heard a story today that I can't get out of my head, you know, or I'm really worried about this client and I can't put it down. So of having a space where you can kind of dump and vent that with uh, another supportive professional and figure out how to get remember and get that perspective about like, what are the limits of what we can do? And how do we accept that? And what are the practices that we can do that are helpful to our clients while also being boundaried? You know, so I feel like I really like that in my work, I get to do the direct work either one on one or with couples. Um, but I also get to work with professionals or community groups or on larger scale. Uh, I'll put your web links in the description of this video. People who find our video on YouTube can see the work that you're doing and can connect yeah. and can take your service as well. And also I'll put your web link on the screen as well. Wonderful. That would be can, great. Can, can, you, can you spell your uh, uh, social media presence or your contact details to my podcast? Yeah, so you absolutely. So you can find me. I think uh, right now I, I have uh, I have a Facebook page. I'm on Instagram. Um, and, uh, if you look and you can find me under my name, which is Jen Brandel, J E N N B R A N D E L. And if another Jen Brandel comes up, it may say Jen Brandel L I C S W, which just means licensed clinical social worker, but that's me. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, if you just search for my name uh, on social media, or if you Google my name, you can find my website or other references or resources. Um, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, what is your uh, feeling and observation about this conversation and also about my work? I was so excited, Sai, when you got in touch with me. And I was, you know, in preparation for this, I was like looking over some of your old interviews. And I think that one of the things that really struck me and why I felt so honored that you'd reached out to me, um, the fact that you talk to people and they're so different, like there's so many different kinds of people you're talking to, um, but every interview you're able to draw out of them just really interesting, valuable pieces that, you know, you may talk to somebody who's in an industry I don't work in. But the way you do the interview, they share something and I learn something or there's something that I'm like, oh, I didn't know that or I never thought about it like that. So it really challenges that idea that the only people that can really teach us are people like us. Like I really like just the the breadth, you know, of like all of the interviews that you do and the way that you do it so genuinely and like put people at ease. And it's, I mean, I knew it was going to feel like this just because I could tell by the other interviews, but it's just like having a conversation, just like chatting with you. But it means when you put somebody at ease and you help them feel so comfortable, I think you get more interesting stories out of the interview. So I have found them all very, very helpful. You're really good at what you do. So how this is going to be helpful for me if I work in IT because I did master's in software engineering and also bachelor's in computer science and engineering and right now I'm preparing for AWS solutions architect position. So how this talking with experts like you who are already in the profession and doing great work asking questions and getting answers and also telling this to my audience and letting them know who you are yeah. and what, how this experience and knowledge is going to be helpful for me personally. Well, I might turn the question over and have you answer that, because I think in some ways I'd be curious how you'd answer that. You know, I think, you know, going back to something earlier in our conversation, I think universally there are just some things that we all can relate to or benefit from. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, what your job is. Um, so I think a lot of the things that we talked about today, it doesn't matter who you are. Those things are useful or helpful. You know, you don't have to work in a particular environment to know what it's like to work with somebody who doesn't have great boundaries or to work with somebody who's overwhelming or difficult to talk to. You know, you don't have to work in a different, you know, in a particular field in order to know what it's like to put a lot of pressure on yourself and to say critical stuff to yourself over the course of the day. Everybody can relate to that on some level. Everybody can relate to that. So I don't know if for you, when you think about 
some of the people you work with or some of the people who you've interviewed or who your audience is that may be more technologically focused or, you know, science focused? Do you feel like this stuff that we're talking about today would resonate? Yeah, definitely. It will reach everybody. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think so, too. I think it's all stuff we can relate to and that you can use in anything, you know, that the things that are in the books are tools or ideas or metaphors or images that you could use wherever you are. You can use it at work with your boss. You can use it when you're in a meeting. You can use it when you're about to do a presentation. You know, you can use it in your with family. You can use it in your partnership or your marriage, you know. So I feel like there's ways in which all of this stuff it's not just work related. It's not just family. It's not just relationship. It's not so specific. It's that's why I say the idea is to try to offer something everybody can get something from. So definitely technologists will reach you for sure who are connected mm -hmm. to me because uh, what I believe is as a technologist, uh, uh, if you if you are uh, great in understanding the psyche yeah. or psychology of a human being, you will be a great technologist. Yes, that's right. Because you have to be able to think about how people think or how they experience something. If they're going to go to a website and they're trying to get some information, you have to be able to think about how are what how is their brain going to work in that moment? What are they going to be looking for? What's going to frustrate them, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. aren't, aren't those all some of the questions you have to think about? So that's why I think in some ways the work you do may not be that different from what I do. <laughs> yeah. Can I put this video on my YouTube channel with your permission? Of course you can. Of course you can. And also, can I put this audio and video clip on my podcast, website, internet, social media, everywhere with your permission? Yes, absolutely. And will you, if you share the link with me, I'll include a link to it um, on my website as well. And I'll put it on my social media pages so that people can find it that way as well. Yeah, I'll share you once it is published. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been so fun. And thank you so much for including me. It's a pleasure for me. You accepted my request and you gave me your valuable time. Of course. Of course. And let me know if you need anything else. <laughs> Take care and keep going. Keep helping people also uh, make you a too. lot of people smile. You too. All right. Take care, Sai. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.